I'm Charlie Hipwood, CEO of Mass Ventures. And I'm Stacy Swider, an investor at Mass Ventures. And we welcome you to the Fundable Founder, where we'll be exploring relevant topics for technology entrepreneurs to help them succeed in raising capital and in growing their businesses. As a founder who started and ran three companies, I didn't know what I didn't know when I first set out. <laughs> but you eventually figured things out, right? For the most part, through trial and error and mentorship. But now as a VC, I'm frequently advising entrepreneurs on the same topics. So Stacy and I are here to share that earned wisdom with you, along with the experts that we interview on a variety of subjects. We are. The roadmap to a successful startup is at your fingertips. So turn up the volume and grab the keys to success for your fundable founder journey. Hi, this is Stacy joining you again for Mass Ventures, and I am with my colleague, Vineet Nahawan, who is a real expert on lots of things, but um, among them is university spinouts, and that is the topic of this video today is um, best practices for university spinouts. Vineet, can you take a minute to introduce yourself? Of course, Stacy. It's so nice to be on with you. Um, so I started my first company as an engineering student. Subsequently, companies acquired by Boeing, Motorola, Qualcomm, Mitel, so aerospace and telecom. But about 15 years ago, I decided I want to uh, help other entrepreneurs rather than be one myself. And, and that's taken two directions. One is as, as an investor and the other as a teacher over at Boston University. That's fantastic. So you have a lot of experience helping uh, university spinouts at Boston University and at other universities throughout the region. Absolutely. So, you know, I, in addition to teaching in the business school, and I, I teach a class on technology commercialization that I created, I also ran the Office of Technology Development at BU for, for six years and really focused it on, on spinouts. And in, in that period of six, six years or so, we ended up launching eight venture-backed companies that have raised over $350 million to date. Wow, that's really impressive. That's so cool. So the, the, the target for this talk today is really university faculty, um, grad students, maybe entrepreneurial champions, people who'd want to join a university spin out. Um, so why don't we get right to it? Um, I think my research has commercial relevance. What should I do? Well, you know, there's this... Um, Great uh, book. It's 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 actually a nice read, um, and it, it's uh, it's written by Stokes, and in it there's there's a, a very simple graph, and it talks about the different types of research, right? There's basic research that's trying to, um, you know, it's a quest for basic understanding. So an example of that would be Niels Bohr. Right, like what's the mechanism? How do atoms work? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then there's the pure applied research, you know, like um, Edison did, where you 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 try all kinds of materials until you find the right one, tungsten, you know, that you can heat up and, and create a light bulb. But he has to keep then, it in a vacuum, right? He's like, whoop, better exactly. keep it in a vacuum. So it doesn't exactly. oxidize. Right. And then there's that research in between, which, which is... Um, but it's basic research, but in search of a solution for a problem. So it's, it's guided by uh, use. So it's use-inspired basic research. 
And, and, and if your research faculty, that quadrant, which by the way is called Pascal's quadrant. So that's like Pascal. So Pascal, um, you know, created some basic understanding uh, of, of, you know, bacteria and biology. Yet he, his inventions were actually useful. And so we call that Pascal's quadrant. And so the first thing you have to, to understand is, are you in Pascal's quadrant? Hmm. Or are you in, in Neil Bohr's quadrant? So you gotta be honest with yourself here, right? Exactly. <laughs> but in general, I find grad students and faculty pretty sharp cookies though. Yes, and, and increasingly, you know, there is more focus on Pascal's quadrant in all our academic institutions, both uh, universities and medical centers. Yeah. It's also being funded by the federal government. So uh, this goes back to um, just after World War II, uh, Vannevar Bush, who was an MIT professor, wrote this policy paper called uh, Science the Endless Frontier. And that paper eventually led to the formation of NSF and NIH, you know, these three-letter agencies who started both doing basic research in their labs, but also funding universities to do basic research. And I know Congress always wants them to be pretty use-driven. So I guess step number one is maybe not find your market, but figure out if you're use-driven, if, if there is a market. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, most I would say that most definitely in the medical centers, you know, they're addressing real patient need. So, you know, the doctors by their nature are pretty close to the customer and the customer being the patient. So I think they have a better idea. If you're in the physics department or engineering department, you know, or a chemistry department, that's a little harder because, you know, you're not as close to the customer. And so trying to understand whether, you know, your invention is, is going to be useful, you really have to go out there and do customer discovery. Do you, is that another best practice? When, when should people start doing the customer discovery? I think uh, always sooner rather than later. Now, NSF has created a program called i -Corps, Yes. Which, uh, I think many faculty have now heard about. And, and, and so they fund um, faculty to go do this. Uh, sort of customer discovery alongside a mentor, just a, a business person who sort of helps them think about what questions to ask, who to reach out to. Yeah, I'm a big fan of i -Core. Yes, Steve Blank, right? Yeah, they use Steve Blank's methodology. It was actually another, um, is MIT stamped all over this. So uh, the head of NSF at that time, Sabrina Race, used to be the Dean of Engineering at MIT. Oh. Um, and, um, and then he got this young man, Errol, uh, Arlick, who was also an MIT grad who actually used the blanks methodology to create i -Corps. Vinit knows I went to MIT. That's <laughs> why <laughs> so you keep saying all this stuff. <laughs> um, so, so should, should an inventor at a, should they focus more on with the market on maybe licensing the technology, um, but patent it, license it, and license to an established company, or should they spin it out into a startup? Yeah, so I think the first thing to do 
if you think you have something of commercial potential is go to your technology licensing office and, and all universities and medical centers have an office like that and, and file an invention disclosure. Okay, first um, get it patented. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. or, or at least get an invention disclosure in, and then the patent, then the licensing office can understand. We'll figure out whether it's patentable. Oh, and the step before that, probably everyone knows this: is don't publish it first. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so be quiet, and then exactly. file the invention disclosure. Then you can patent. Then you can talk about it. Yeah. No, you can you can talk about it in. Um, you know, small groups, and especially if it's, you know, under a non-disclosure agreement. So th there's no no reason why you can't sort of talk to potential industry partners and stuff under NDA. That does not uh, get in the way of patenting later. But, but you can't you can't publish a paper and present a conference. Yeah. yeah, because then it becomes uh, prior art and, and you can't patent it. So, yeah, so go to your office, file an invention disclosure. They're going to figure out whether it's patentable. They usually use outside law firms to help write the patent. Um, and so and they will do this for the professor or grad student more or less for free, right? No, it is for free. Yeah. So these, these offices are funded by the university. Go over and talk to them. And exactly. Very, very expensive help that you get for free. Okay. Exactly. And, and so that's really the first step. I think the second step is to try to publish in a, in a good journal, you know, the best journal you can publish in. And that, you know, I think all most faculty know that, um, you know, and I think then the third step is to um, really think about, should I find an established company who will be interested in licensing this and, and putting some resources behind it to commercialize it? That's your best option. If you can find one, then you should do that. The problem is most companies find this academic research too early for them. They that's want to right. see it. They would, they would rather gobble up a startup, but that's the, the trend now is to wait, right. watch, de-risk it. Then they'll then it's yeah. Exactly. And and that's exactly why when I was uh, you know uh, running OTD at BU. We focused on on spinouts, you know, so spinning this research out into a startup. And so, if that's the direction you want to go in, well, there's a bunch of things you need to figure out next. So, first and foremost, and this is the class that I create and I teach, you need to create a go-to-market strategy. And what I mean by that is most of these academic technologies are what are known as platform technologies. So they can have many applications. And so picking the right first application is critical. That's right. It has to be impactful, but not ridiculously expensive to get there. Yeah. And, um, you know, and the market has to be ready for it. And, mm -hmm. and that's the hardest thing to figure out is, you know, is the market ready for what you're thinking about? So let's assume that you can take that science and you can engineer it. So now you've engineered it, but is the market ready for it? And, you know, so it's important to try to find those markets that are more ready for your uh, science. Who are going to be the early adopters? They're going to be the ones in the most pain. And it is really super possible. I think people like you and I, who've had the pleasure of living many decades, um, it is possible to be too early. I've seen it for sure right. multiple times.
Exactly. And, you know, and so once you've sort of figured out the go-to-market strategy, you said, well, this is my beachhead market, then you want to attract in what I call an entrepreneurial champion. Hmm, what's uh, that? So this is somebody, um, you know, with uh, a business background who has <laughs> done startups in this kind of market that you're targeting and even better has done startups that came from university science. I see. So just a real business person to help with that, the, that massive part of the journey. Yeah, because, you know, the first part of the journey is to start gathering resources like funding. And look, I get asked this question often by grad students or postdocs who, you know, who are spinning out uh, into the startup. You know, they said, well, why, why can't I be the CEO? And I said, you absolutely can be the CEO. But do understand at, at these very early stages of the startup, the science and business are co-equal, you know, so there's, the, it's not that the business is more important or the science is more important, they're co-equal. And yes, of course, you, the scientist, can learn to be the business person, but, you know, your, your chances of success go up if you team up with a really good business person. I see. And this is something you've seen in, in your years. Um, yeah, that's exactly exactly what we implemented at BU and, and what we're doing here at Mass Ventures. Uh, you know, we've created this program called Mass VX to help these academic spin-outs connect to entrepreneurial champions. Yes, Mass VX program is excellent and has helped a lot of teams um, succeed and perfect. So we're gonna move forward in our next video to talk about um, when, if you decide to launch, you know, what, what then are there some final points for this one? We've got, go to your TLO. We'll figure out if it's really, <laughs> if it's in Pascal's quadrant, go to your TLO, um, see if you can license it. And if you want to do spin out, start thinking about, about getting, improving your team or with an entrepreneurial champion. Yeah. And I, I, I would just add one more thing that I forgot to add. So um, you know, quite often faculty are also obviously part of the invention. So it could be a faculty, grad students. Um, it's really about knowledge transfer to the startup. And ideally knowledge transfer happens if, if one of the co-inventor grad students, you know, goes to the startup. Uh, it can also happen by the faculty member, you know, being like the chair of the scientific advisory board of the startup most likely faculty are not going to leave their academic institution, but, but they can be involved in the startup on the scientific advisory board side. Now, some universities do allow faculty to, to leave, you know, get a leave of absence and go work on a startup and come back. And, you know, like MIT has always allowed that, but now others are starting to, it, that's always a possibility, but, but I think most faculty will stay back as faculty and perhaps just support their grad students. I see. So that's a good, that is a, a good pattern to, to map on. Yeah, exactly. to work. All right. I think for now, we will stop there. Please stay tuned. Vineet and I are going to join you for round two of university spinouts. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fundable Founder. Please go to our website at mass-ventures.com for more information on Mass Ventures and where you can also find other episodes just like this.